We come to the eighth chapter of Daniel. I encourage you to take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 8. For those of you who are visiting, you're kind of being plunked right into the midst of these visions, but we trust that you will be able to, uh, to pick up with us as we make our way through the eighth chapter. Over the years, I've really come to love this book of Daniel, and uh, just so much in it, and uh, hope you'll be encouraged here this afternoon as we consider a vision that he receives in the third year of Belshazzar. Daniel chapter 8, beginning at verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, to me, Daniel. After the one that appeared to me the first time, I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking that I was in Shushan, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision that I was by the river Uli, and I lifted my eyes and saw, and there standing beside the river was a ram, which had two horns. The two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. And the higher one came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward, so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between its, uh, his eyes. Then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river, and ran at him with furious power. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. Therefore the male goat grew very great. When he became strong, the large horn was broken, and in place of it four notable ones came up toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land." And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down because of transgression. An army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this. And prospered. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that certain one who was speaking, How long will the vision be concerning the daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For two thousand three hundred days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. And it happened when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. 
But he said to me, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and stood me upright, and he said, Look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for at the appointed time the end shall be. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia, and the male goat is the kingdom of Greece. The large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall arise out of that nation, but not with its power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features, who understands sinister schemes. His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He shall destroy fearfully and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. Through his cunning, he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes, but he shall be broken without human means. And the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told, is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. So far, the reading of God's holy word. A recurring theme in the book of Daniel is the conflict between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this world. The powers of darkness oppose the light and seek to gain mastery over it. Through the various visions that the Lord gave Daniel, he learned that the conflict would continue throughout the ages and at times the battle would become extremely fierce. We saw in the seventh chapter how the Lord gave Daniel a pictorial representation of history from the time of the Babylonian Empire to the great apostasy and the revealing of the man of sin prior to the return of Jesus. In the eighth chapter, we see that the Lord once again granted Daniel a vision of things to come. In the seventh chapter, we saw that there were some parallels between Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2 and Daniel's vision of the four great beasts who came up from the sea. In the eighth chapter, we once again find some overlap with the previous visions. But while there is some overlap, there are also additional insights to consider. Chapter 8 begins by telling us that the vision took place in the third year of King Belshazzar two years after the vision recorded in the previous chapter. The Babylonian Empire was still standing. The writing on the wall of the king's palace had not yet announced its collapse. Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the vision of chapter 7 both occurred during the night, night visions. This one evidently took place in the daytime while Daniel was conscious. He was caught up in the spirit 
and transported to Susa, or Shushan, the capital of, the, of Persia in the province of Elam. Daniel saw himself at the banks of the river Uli, which was a large 900-foot-wide canal connecting two prominent rivers. While seated by the river, the Lord gave him a vision of a great power struggle that unfolds throughout the chapter. Verses 3 to 14 record the content of Daniel's vision, and verses 15 through 27 record the interpretation that he received through the angel Gabriel. The vision reveals three figures that are the principal participants in this unfolding drama. A resolute ram, a global goat, and a haughty horn. A resolute ram, a global goat, and a haughty horn. First, a resolute ram. Sitting by the river Uli, Daniel's gaze came into focus, and he saw a ram with two horns standing beside the river. The two horns were high, but one was higher than the other. There is no need for speculation regarding the identity of the ram, for we are specifically told in verse 20 that the ram symbolizes what? The empire of the Medes and Persians. The two horns each represent one half of that empire. One horn is described as being longer or more powerful than the other. The longer horn is the Persian kingdom, which was the dominant kingdom in the two-nation coalition. It seems to express the same idea as the bear raised up on one side back in chapter 7, verse 5. The symbol of Persia was a ram. A Persian king would even carry the image of a ram before him when he went out into battle. It's therefore not surprising to find a ram in Daniel's vision as a symbol of the Medo-Persian Empire. As Daniel looked, verse 4, he saw this ram butting its way westward, northward, and southward so that no one, no animal could withstand him, nor was there any that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will as he pleased and became great. With his back toward the east from which he had come, the ram aggressively pushed and butted in every direction. Its power was great and its conquest all-embracing. It could not be resisted or restrained. It is an historical fact that the Medo-Persian Empire under Cyrus made many military advances. They pressed westward, northward, and southward. They conquered the Lydian kingdom in Asia Minor. They conquered Babylon. They pushed into Egypt. They pushed in all directions so that no one could withstand them. Cyrus even called himself king of the world, king of the worlds. Eventually, the Medo-Persian Empire became larger than any other empire in the history of the ancient Near East. Now, congregation, in the fifth chapter, you'll recall that when Daniel was summoned to the palace of Belshazzar to interpret the writing that mysteriously appeared on the wall by a disembodied hand, Mene, Mene, take al Farsin. When Daniel entered the palace, before he even saw the writing, he probably knew what it was all about. 
In the first year of Belshazzar, Daniel had a vision. And again, in the third year, he had this vision. Through the visions, he knew that the great kingdom of Babylon was going to be crushed by the kings of Media and Persia. When Daniel entered Belshazzar's palace on that memorable day and read the inscription, Mene, Mene, take El Eupharsin, it was only a confirmation of what he already knew for some time. The handwriting on the wall only indicated to him that the time had come. That very night, the ram butted its way into Babylon and the kingdom collapsed. The demise of golden Babylon did not come as a surprise to Daniel, for the Lord had revealed it to him prior to its occurrence. Perhaps this helps to explain the boldness of Daniel as he stood before Belshazzar to predict the imminent death of the proud and blasphemous king. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and Persians. The ram pressed its way into Babylon and defeated it just as the Lord had said. He is ruler of the nations. He is ruler of the nations. Then secondly, as Daniel was caught up in the spirit, he saw not only a ram, but also a male goat. A male goat. According to verse 5, the male goat came racing from the west at such a speed that its feet did not touch the ground. And in the center of its head was a notable horn. What is this male goat? Well, again, we are not left to guess. For verse 21 tells us that the male goat is the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The notable horn is undoubtedly a reference to Alexander the Great. The male goat with a large horn between its eyes came racing from the west and charged at the ram with furious power. Look with me in your Bibles to verse 7. Verse 7. And I saw him confronting the ram. He was moved with rage against him, attacked the ram, and broke his two horns. There was no power in the ram to withstand him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one that could deliver the ram from his hand. With his head down and its horn forward, the enraged goat charged the ram with crushing fury and struck it down so that the ram was totally and completely humiliated. With its horns broken, the injured, bleeding beast was cast to the ground with no way of escape, and its body was trampled to pieces. The male goat charging from the west without its feet touching the ground represents the speed with which Alexander the Great made his conquests. Within three years, the entire Persian Empire was defeated. Alexander became, a, a, became general of the Greek army when he was 21. By the time he was 26, he had virtually conquered the world. In one of his battles against the Persian forces, Alexander, with only 35,000 men, plunged through a river and attacked 100 
thousand footmen and ten thousand horsemen of the forces of Darius. He reportedly killed twenty thousand while losing only a hundred of his own men. Alexander enjoyed victory after victory. Verse 8 says that the male goat grew very great. His success, however, was rather short-lived. At the very height of his power, he was struck down. Verse 8 goes on to say, but when he became strong, the large horn was broken. Suddenly and unexpectedly, at the age of just 33, Alexander died. Verse 8 does not tell us who broke the horn, but we know that it was the unseen hand of God. The Lord himself snapped the notable horn from the head of the goat. While dwelling in Babylon, which he had hoped to make his supreme, the supreme capital of his empire, Alexander was seized with what is thought to have been malaria. His malaria was aggravated by his recklessness in eating and drinking, and he died in the prime of his life in his 33rd year. The Lord spoke, and the large horn was broken. It shows us, congregation, that even the greatest of men are dependent on God. Even powerful world, world rulers cannot escape God's appointed hour of death. Alexander conquered the world, but he could not conquer death and the grave. He conquered the world, but when God spoke, he was conquered. Although God allowed him to trample the nations, he himself was trampled under the judgment of God. And I think of Jesus' words when he said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Dear friends, think about this for a moment. How many people today are trying to build their own little kingdoms? Perhaps not a global kingdom like Alexander the Great, but a sphere of activity in which we rule in which we are in control, and in which we shape our own world and our own destiny. How many people claw their way to the top of the corporate ladder, knocking to the ground and trampling others as they do so? How many people build their company and strive for success with little concern for integrity, righteousness, honesty, and Christ-like compassion? How many are driven by a desire to get ahead and a desire to be recognized? How many CEOs are modern Alexanders who long to be the greatest? How many businessmen, athletes, politicians, prime ministers, or presidents are modern Alexanders shooting for the top for the sake of their own glory? The people of God, did you look in the mirror this morning as you were shaving or as you were curling your hair? And did you see in the mirror an Alexander or an Alexandrus? Do you realize that we all have some of that spirit within us? A spirit of self-sufficiency, self-reliance, and self-exaltation? A spirit that says, I can do this on my own. 
I'm in charge of my life. I can build this family. I can build this business. I can build this farm. I can be successful. How we need to remember the words of Jesus. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? It is our hope and prayer today that Alora will come to see through her parents and through you that she is not the center of the universe and that she is not self-sufficient and self-reliant. Christ, His kingdom, His fame, and His glory are all important. May she come to see that He is our life, our hope, our treasure, our everlasting joy. And may that be the confession of each of the children and young people here today. It's all about Him. Alexander ruled the world. But when God spoke, the prominent horn was immediately broken off. As far as we know, he is at this very moment suffering the eternal horrors of hell from which he will never escape. The man who ruled the largest empire the world had ever seen is now experiencing the everlasting anguish of God-forsakenness. What a sad and terrible thought. May that not be the future for any of you who are here today. Well, with the death of Alexander, the Greek Empire continued on. With the breaking of the notable horn, the male goat was not yet dead. Verse 8 tells us that when the large horn was broken, four horns came up in place of it. Alexander's empire was divided into four regions, each one governed by one of his generals. Of these four kingdoms, one of them takes a prominent role in Daniel's vision. Look with me in your Bibles to verse 9. And out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. The little horn becomes the central focus of the vision, and its activity is described in careful detail. With the little horn, we come to the climax of the vision. What is this little horn? And why is it more significant than the ram or the goat? It is significant because its power stretches into what? The glorious land or the beautiful land that is the promised land, the land of God's covenant people. The little horn takes center stage in the vision because its power is directed with demonic hatred against the people of God. But who is this little horn? In the previous vision of chapter 7, we saw a little horn whom we identified as the final antichrist. But this is clearly not the same little horn, for the little horn of chapter 7 emerged out of the fourth beast, while the little horn of chapter 8 emerges out of the fragmented empire of the Greeks. 
Who then is this little horn? And how does it relate to the little horn of the previous chapter? There seems to be little doubt that this is a prophecy of the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes, who was one of the greatest enemies of the Jewish people of all time. Antiochus Epiphanes arose out of one of the quarters of the Greek Empire. He was the eighth king of the Seleucid dynasty. He was an evil persecutor of the people of God. Perhaps the reason he is called a little horn is because of the similarity that exists between him and the final Antichrist. Scripture speaks of many Antichrists that rise up prior to the emergence of the final Antichrist. Antiochus Epiphany certainly bore the demonic characteristics of the Antichrist. Let's have a look at some of the characteristics of this little horn. Go with me to verse 10. And it grew up to the host of heaven, and it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the ground and trampled them. Now, in Exodus 7.4 and Exodus 12.41, the people of Israel are called the host of the Lord. Scripture also compares them to the stars of heaven. What this describes then is the persecution of God's people under Antiochus Epiphanes, his crimes against the people of the Lord whom he cruelly crushed. Verse 11 says that he even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. In other words, he put himself in the place of God. The name Antiochus Epiphanes even means God made manifest. God made manifest. Antiochus Epiphanes came to power in 175 BC. He was a power-hungry man who sought to expand his kingdom to include Palestine. He replaced the high priest in Jerusalem with a man of his own choosing because one of his goals was the dissemination of Greek culture throughout his realm. While on one of his military expeditions against Egypt, a rumor that he had been killed in battle reached Jerusalem. Immediately, an attempt was made to reinstate the genuine high priest. When Antiochus found out, he left Egypt and marched angrily on Jerusalem. He savagely attacked the city. An estimated 40,000 people were killed within the space of three days. Antiochus then entered the temple and defiled it by sacrificing a pig on the altar. This was the greatest insult of faithful Judaism that could possibly be imagined, to sacrifice swine upon the holy altar, unclean. He also took some of the sacred furniture and reappointed his own high priest. Then, several years later, Antiochus prepared for another military expedition against Egypt. But while he was on the march, he received a message from the Senate in Rome telling him rather bluntly to abandon his plans. Antiochus knew that it would be foolish to embroil himself in war with Rome, and therefore he was forced to turn back. However, his inability to carry out his plans stung his pride, and he once again marched in anger on Jerusalem and vented his rage on the Jews. 
He sent his general into the city with more than 20,000 soldiers. The army took advantage of the Sabbath day to enter the city, and they massacred the Jews assembled for worship. The temple was profaned, and the sacred books of the law were burned. A temple of Zeus was erected in in the temple, and human sacrifices were made on the altar. The regular temple services and daily sacrifices were forbidden. Circumcision of Jewish infants was forbidden. The Sabbath and other feast days were profaned, and Antiochus made it a crime to possess a copy of the Jewish scriptures. During the reign of Antiochus, the Jews experienced a time of unparalleled suffering. Psalm 79 The psalmist described a very similar situation. Listen to Psalm 79. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. Your holy temple they have defiled. They have laid Jerusalem in heaps. The dead bodies of your servants they have given as food for the birds of the heavens. The flesh of your saints to the beasts of the earth, their blood they have shed like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to those who are around us. How long, Lord? How long, Lord? Psalm 79 gives you an idea of the cries of the faithful as they suffered under the brutal persecution of this little horn. Verse 11 says, have a look, verse 11. He even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, And by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. Go to verse 12. Because of transgression, an army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices, and he cast truth down to the ground. He did all this and prospered. Antiochus Epiphanes, God made manifest. He practiced evil without restraint and prospered in it. It was a time of unbelievable suffering for the people of God. The light seemed to be swallowed up by darkness. But then, brothers and sisters, as Daniel continued to observe the events unfolding in this vision, he overheard two heavenly beings holy ones, discussing how long this appalling period would last. How long would he carry on his blasphemous persecution? The answer is found in verse 14. And he said to me, For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Literally, the text reads, 2,300 evening mornings. This could be interpreted in two ways. It could be 2,300 24-hour days, which amounts to over six years. Or it could be referring to the morning and evening sacrifices, which is 1,150 days or three years and 55 days. Whatever the case... The Holy One predicted that after a time, the sacrificial system would be restored, 
the sanctuary would be cleansed and the temple worship would resume. This took place during the Maccabean Revolt. The temple was reconsecrated by Judas Maccabeus, 164 BC, and reopened for the worship of God. Daniel was able to see these events, brothers and sisters, almost 400 years before they actually took place. The vision was accurately fulfilled during the reign of Antiochus and the subsequent Maccabean Revolt. Well, as you move on in this chapter to verses 15 to 26, the divine interpretation of this vision is given to Daniel. We've already considered some of this as we made our way through verses 1 to 14, but there are several details that we have not yet reflected upon. Having seen the vision, Daniel sought the meaning. Suddenly there stood before him, verse 15b, one having the appearance of a man. He looked like a man, yet he wasn't a man. It was the angel Gabriel. Daniel heard a man's voice between the banks of the river who called to Gabriel and said, Make this man understand the vision. Tell him the meaning. In obedience to the voice of God, Gabriel came near. But Daniel was filled with terror. And he fell down on his face. He recognized that he was a sinner in the presence of a sinless being. Standing in the presence of God's sinless messenger was enough to overwhelm him with a sense of unworthiness. Brothers and sisters, when the unholy faces the holy, there is always a profound awareness of the sinner's inadequacy. But Daniel's fear did not stop the angel. He said to him, end of verse 17, Understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. The end spoken of there in verse 17 is not the end of history, but the end of the horrible persecution under Antiochus. The Lord sent Gabriel to assure Daniel that there would be an end. Daniel, however, was so overwhelmed by the angel's presence that he lost consciousness. Look at verse 18. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. The sight and voice of the angel proved to be more than he could handle. He had to be touched by Gabriel and helped to his feet before the interpretation could continue. But he touched me and stood me upright, raised me to my feet. Gabriel then went on to explain the vision. The ram is Medo-Persia, the male goat is the kingdom of Greece, the notable horn is its first king, Alexander the Great, the four horns arising in its place represent the division of the Greek Empire into four parts after Alexander's death. Out of one of these would arise the little horn, a demonically driven king with a diabolical hatred for the people of God and all they, that they represent. Verses 23 through 25 give us a brief yet frightful description of Antiochus Epiphanes. He is said to have fierce features. That is, a hard, determined, unyielding character. 
He is also described as one who understands sinister schemes, a master of intrigue. He found pleasure in evil and deceit. Verse 24 says, His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. He would have great attainments, but only within the boundaries that God set out for him, only by divine permission. Verse 24 goes on to say, He shall destroy fearfully, astounding devastation, and shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the mighty and also the holy people. All his energy would be used to destroy, break down, and crush the people of God. Move to verse 25. Through his cunning he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule, and he shall exalt himself in his heart. He shall destroy many in their prosperity. He shall even rise against the prince of princes. You see, Antiochus was puffed up with arrogance and self-glory. He was inflated with the delusion of his own importance. His reign can be described as a reign of terror. He rose up in bold defiance of the living God, the prince of princes. He fell for the oldest of all temptations. You will be like God. You will be like God. The congregation, the end of verse 25 shows us that his demonic opposition and self-exaltation could not go on indefinitely. He shall be broken without human means, or he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The unseen hand of God reaches down and removes him from the stage of history. The same Lord who broke the large horn from the head of the male goat stretched out his hand and snapped off the little horn. Antiochus contracted a a terrible and painful disease and the Lord removed him from the seat of authority. He shall be broken without human means. But now, brothers and sisters, what was Daniel's response to all of this? We'll go down to the last verse of chapter 8. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it, or it was beyond understanding. For Daniel, it was all so overwhelming that for a time he was too sick to serve the king. For days, he was unable to work, and even when his strength returned, the vision continued to perplex him. It was indelibly stamped upon his mind. We sometimes use the expression, it makes me feel sick. Well, that was literally so in the case of Daniel. But why was he so burdened and overwhelmed by this vision? Because first of all, Daniel was concerned for the future of the kingdom of God. Daniel was concerned for the future of the kingdom of God. Even though he would not personally experience the suffering described here, he was concerned for those who would. 
the evil, the sin, the suffering, the persecution that would be unleashed against the people of God made him physically ill. Others might have said, well, at least it's not in my day. At least it's not in my day. But Daniel wasn't like that. He wasn't merely concerned for himself. He was burdened for the kingdom of God. And isn't that the burden that should also rest upon you and me? A burden for the kingdom. Secondly, Daniel must have understood something about the relationship between the little horn of chapter 7 and the little horn of chapter 8. Through the bitter persecutions of Antiochus Epiphanes, many of the characteristics of the final Antichrist are revealed. Antiochus set himself up as God. The final Antichrist will set himself up as God. Antiochus hated the people of God. The final Antichrist will hate the people of God. Antiochus, by his defilement of the temple and by restraining the temple sacrifices, essentially sought to stamp out the gospel. For the temple service proclaimed the atonement and pointed God's people to the sacrificial lamb. The Old Testament temple with its ceremonies and shedding of blood, when rightly observed, directed sinners to Jesus Christ. Antiochus was stamping out the gospel. So it will be also with the final Antichrist. He will hate the gospel, hate the word, hate the church, hate all that is associated with Christianity. He will try to stamp out the gospel of salvation through faith in Jesus. He will try to cast truth to the ground. Antiochus Epiphanes was a precursor of the final son of perdition. His evil work gives an indication of what it will be like under the man of sin. Antiochus was ruthless and deceitful. The final Antichrist will be ruthless and deceitful. Antiochus was intolerant and demonically driven. The final Antichrist will be intolerant and demonically driven. Antiochus was puffed up with pride, self-glory, and arrogance. The final Antichrist will be puffed up with pride, self-glory, and arrogance. Antiochus delighted in a reign of terror. The final Antichrist will delight in a reign of terror. Therefore, congregation, this vision although given more than 2,500 years ago, still has a message for you today. This is not merely a prophecy of how terrible the Jews would be treated under Antiochus Epiphanes. It is also a prophecy that reveals the conflict between darkness and light, a conflict which will only increase at the close of history. Even as Antiochus came exactly as it was written of him, so we can be sure that the son of perdition will come exactly as it is written of him, 2 Thessalonians 2. The certainty of his coming should make us more watchful, more diligent, more zealous for truth, more thankful for the freedoms that we currently enjoy.
The day is coming when the faith of God's people will be sorely tested and tried. Antiochus was powerful and wicked, but the man of sin will be far more powerful and considerably more wicked. But brothers and sisters, this vision teaches us not only the destructive power of the Antichrist which might drive us to despair, it also teaches the sovereign power of God which triumphs over all. The destruction of Antiochus is a foretaste of the final destruction of the Antichrist. Antiochus was broken without human hand. The unseen hand of God reached down and snapped off the little horn, removing it from the stage of history. So it will be also with the man of sin. His power may seem impressive, but to God it means nothing. The man of sin will spit in the face of heaven. He will exalt himself above God. But at the appointed time, the unseen hand will reach down and put an end to his evil forever. And so, brothers and sisters, we can have confidence in our faithful God and Father. The unseen hand will direct the course of history, upholding his own perfect plan. He is the God of history, and every event will serve his sovereign will. No evil power can arise or prosper without his sovereign decree. In the end, the little horn will be utterly destroyed. People of God, you have a horn that is far superior. Remember in the Gospel of Luke, Zacharias, being filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, saying what? Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up, what? A horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. A horn of salvation. Zacharias was prophesying of Jesus Christ. A horn of strength, an unbreakable, enduring horn. In Jesus Christ, God has given us a horn. Every other ruler is bound to fall, but the dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ will endure forever. Each and every one of you must bow in humble submission before that horn of salvation. God has raised up a horn that is greater than any other horn. He is the one that brings deliverance, and he is the one through whom our eternity is secured. So I ask you this afternoon, have you trusted that horn of salvation? Are you resting your confidence in Him? If so, then you need not fear the Antichrist, the son of perdition. If Alora puts her trust in Him, she doesn't have to be afraid. For Jesus Christ, the horn of salvation, will deliver her and you and bring us into His eternal kingdom.
Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has raised up a horn of salvation. Let us pray. Lord, once again, we are comforted by the fact that you are Lord of history. And we recognize, Lord, the terrible suffering that your people have endured, particularly under the evil rule of Antiochus Epiphanes, the one who regarded himself as God made manifest. And we think of how that anticipates and prefigures the final Antichrist. Lord, sometimes it is rather disconcerting as we ponder these things. And yet, Lord, we know that you will continue to preserve your people and preserve your church. And so we pray, Lord, that you will be with each and every one of us here. We do anticipate. We don't know when it will come, but we do anticipate terrible suffering for the people of God. We know that in many nations of the world, that's already the case. We hear stories coming out of many nations, and Lord, we recognize that that could very well happen here also. In fact, we see it happening more and more. But we pray, Lord, that we would put our faith and trust in that horn of salvation. That we, Lord, would believe and take comfort from the fact that Christ has won the victory. That Christ will reign forever and all who've trusted Him will be delivered and experience everlasting blessedness, eternal pleasures at your right hand. Lord, we recognize in, a, in an assembly of this size there could very well be some who have not yet given themselves, yielded to that horn of salvation. There may be some here who have not put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that it should that be the case, that you will convict their hearts even now. That, Lord, we may see sinners put their faith in the one who will never disappoint, the one who loves his people with an everlasting love. We pray, Lord, that if the children here should suffer great persecution in years to come, that you will keep them steadfast. And that, Lord, the light will continue to shine even in the midst of terrible darkness. We do look forward to that everlasting kingdom. And we do say, Lord, with Zacharias, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has raised up a horn of salvation. What a blessing and what a comfort. We praise you. We worship you. 
we love you. Hear us in Jesus' name. Amen.